Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy has been created specifically for adult audiences. Listener discretion is advised. There is graphic depiction of violence and murder, frank portrayal of sexuality, and at times excessive language. The thoughts and opinions in this podcast are mine. This is episode 5, The World According to Max. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you for listening. I have always been fascinated about where podcasts are downloaded. With my last podcast, Who Killed Leanne Holland, we found that of the almost 1 million downloads, 80% were in Australia and New Zealand. The rest were scattered around the world with some very exotic locations included. I think it will be the same with this podcast, an 80-20 mix. A listener from the Sunshine Coast here in Queensland is listening to the podcast in Libya. I am aware of other listeners in Sweden and Kazakhstan near the Chinese border. This podcast is mixed and mastered in Thailand, so obviously there is a following there as well. With the Leanne Holland case, I was firmly of the opinion Graham Stewart Stafford did not commit that murder, and I made no secret of that in the podcast. I believe the evidence supported my position, and we paid the price for that position. The abuse from some listeners was constant and extreme. My co-host was stunned at the level of abuse in some of the comments. He wondered what he had signed up for. Graham Stafford's conviction was ultimately quashed. As you may be aware, a police review found they were satisfied they had got it right, but then refused to release the review to anyone, including Graham Stafford. Six years later, and after the podcast had been released, we finally received a redacted copy of the police review. That review is the subject of a further episode on the case shortly, if you're interested. When I prepared this podcast, I was therefore more circumspect. I was determined to just tell the story, and I believe I have done just that. The majority of feedback I have received regarding this podcast so far has been favourable, with the below exception. I considered replying directly to the listener, but then thought perhaps maybe other people feel the same way so I decided to address it openly. I can do that, I guess. It is, after all, my podcast. This is part of what the listener said. This is a farce, mate. You say you do not question Seekers' guilt, but this entire podcast so far is dedicated to questioning that, and your bias towards his innocence is obvious. As I said in episode one, the only information I had on this case, up to December 2020, was what I had read or seen in the media and as such I was satisfied of Max Seeker's guilt. 
As at this episode, 5, I have not seen any evidence that proves he is innocent. What I set out to do, and believe I have done, is provide the listening community with all the facts of the case, for you to understand the complexities of the case. And cases built on circumstantial evidence alone do concern me. I could have easily filtered the evidence, but I haven't. That is, withheld evidence in the podcast that makes Max Seeker look innocent, or withheld evidence that makes him look guilty. I am 100% sure I have not withheld any evidence, except where I have been required to by law. If anyone has evidence they believe I have withheld, please tell me and I'll address it. In episode 4, for example, I pondered just reading out the 17 points of the Crown case. But what would be the point of that? Most people are not across the evidence. Hence why I added what I believe the evidence reflects. I do exactly the same in this episode when addressing the defence case. I can only assume from the tone of my voice the listener has concluded I am sympathetic to the defence case. What I have discovered so far from reading the thousands of documents relates to procedural fairness. Matters I believe should have gone to the jury, but didn't. In most of those instances, but not all, the defence team were aware of the evidence, but for a variety of reasons, the witnesses were not called. I am not attacking the police. I was surprised when Max Seeker became the focus of the investigation so early. There is a concern, right or wrong, that evidence can then be filtered, consciously and more likely subconsciously. The police did a very difficult job under very distressing circumstances. They have my admiration. I am questioning the legal system. This case is such a typical example. The trial of Max Seeker was not about finding out who killed the Singh children. It was to find out whether Max Seeker killed the Singh children. And therein lies the problem. The prosecutor and the defence barristers are there to win. The prosecutor has his narrative to help him win, and the defence has their narrative to help them win. And believe me, barristers hate to lose trials. Careers are made on trial outcomes. And words like distraction do infuriate me. It is a cop-out. It is not addressing the evidence. Instead of the court saying, there is a problem with that particular piece of evidence and maybe we should be looking at it, the evidence is palmed off by calling it a distraction. I did think the judge was sceptical of the confession evidence, but I did not see him as therefore being on Seeker's side. Thanks for your feedback. It was Max Seeker's position that he did not kill the Singh siblings. It was someone else. Personal persons unknown. He had nothing to do with it and loved Neilma and would never hurt her. He told police who he did suspect was behind the murders. The obligation is on the Crown to prove the guilt of the defendant beyond a reasonable doubt. The defendant has the presumption of innocence. He or she does not have to prove anything. He or she does not have to give evidence nor call witnesses at trial. That is their prerogative. Some defendants do give evidence and call witnesses. Some do not. There is a tactical advantage to not giving evidence and calling evidence. If the defence do not call any witnesses, 
the Defence Counsel gets to address the jury after the Crown and effectively break down the Crown case point by point. If the Defence do call any witnesses, including the defendant, the Crown gets to address the jury last, before the judge, of course. Max Seeker wanted to give evidence and call witnesses, but his barrister, Sam DiCarlo, did not agree and wanted to be able to address the jury last. It is a brave defendant who ignores the advice of his trial barrister. Accordingly, several crucial witnesses did not get to tell the jury their story. To clarify that, the Crown has an obligation to call all witnesses that may have evidence about the matter. But the prosecutor can refuse to call witnesses considered biased or unreliable. A key part of the Crown case was that Max Seeker was lying when he claimed he was at home all night on Sunday 20 April 2003. They further claimed that Seeker lied about the time he arrived at the Singh House on Tuesday 22 April 2003. It is accepted that evidence of lying strengthens the Crown case exponentially. There were three witnesses that had evidence to show, in the opinion of the defence at least, that Max Seeker was not lying when he claimed he was home on the Sunday night. Claudio Seeker, brother to Max, gave police a statement saying that on the Sunday night he was at home with his girlfriend Marcia and that Max was home. He drove Marcia home to a house at approximately midnight. When he returned home, he went into Max's bedroom to speak with him, but saw that he was asleep. The Crown did not call him to give evidence. Claudio died of cancer in 2014. In 2003, Marcia was a 28-year-old single woman who had known Claudio Seeker for six years and been in a relationship with him for three years. Through that relationship, she met and knew Max Seeker. On 26 April 2003, four days after the bodies were found, she gave police a statement. She stated she had been out on the Sunday with Claudio and spent the evening at the Seeker house. Max said goodnight between 10pm and 11pm and went to bed. She heard his door close. She believed it was about 12.30am when Claudio drove her home after the movie she was watching, Horse Whisperer, finished. She stated that at that time, all three Seeker vehicles, including Max's Prelude, were parked on the street outside the house. Please confirm the finishing time of the movie Horse Whisperer that night with the TV channel. Marcia was questioned extensively and aggressively at the crime and misconduct hearing in 2006 and accused of lying. She strenuously denied that allegation and forcefully maintained her evidence was truthful and accurate. The prosecutor refused to call her to give evidence at the trial in 2012. I have been unable to speak with Marcia, but if she is listening, I would be happy to talk with her. Lisa L. was an entirely different matter. In 2003, she and her family were living next door to the Seeker family in the home previously occupied by the Sings. She recalled seeing Max Seeker's prelude parked outside the Seeker house at 1am on the Monday morning, the night the Crown alleged Seeker had gone to the Singh house to kill the siblings 
shortly after 11.10pm. The jury did not hear her evidence either. You may recall in episode 1 that in late March 2004, almost on the anniversary of the murders, detectives were instructed to door-knock neighbours to the Singh family home. When Lisa L was door-knocked by police, she told them she had seen Max Seeker's car parked outside his house at 1am on Monday 21 April 2003. She was told police would return and take her statement. She waited and was never contacted. When she saw media reports of the trial in progress nine years later, she contacted the defence team and told them of her evidence, but again was not contacted. How did this significant piece of evidence fall between the cracks? Quite easily as it transpires. And seemingly not by accident. Following on from the initial door knock in early April 2004, a job log was issued in late April 2004 and a detective instructed as follows. Question Lisa L as to her knowledge of Seeker and all the Sings. The detective given the job log acting on his own authority or by instruction from someone more senior, did not interview Lisa L. So obviously no statement was taken. The job log result was written up as follows. No information has come to light before or since this job log was created to suggest Lisa L is pertinent to the prosecution brief or can assist with this investigation. This job log can be filed at this time. You may also recall that in episode 1, I mentioned that experienced officers are designated to review all job logs to ensure that all inquiries have been fully and accurately completed. This job log was reviewed as follows. MIR Coordinated Detective Sergeant, whose name was written, concurs with this decision. A statement was not taken from Lisa L. in 2018 by a solicitor acting for Max Seeker. Her evidence was an inconvenient truth for the Crown case. If true and accurate, it derails their claim that Max Seeker left home shortly after the 11.10pm phone call and murdered the Singh family. One can only speculate the weight the jury would have given the evidence of Claudio Seeker, Marcia and Lisa L. I have spoken with Lisa L who confirmed the full contents of her statement of 2018 and confirmed that she saw Max Seeker's car parked outside the Seeker home at around 1am on the morning of Monday the 23rd of April 2003. At 7.15am the car was still there in the same position. Lisa declined to participate in the podcast. There is also the troubling evidence of taxi driver Bourne that the jury did not hear from and you have not heard about until now. Taxi driver Bourne read about the murders in a newspaper article in the days after 22 April 2003. There was a photo of the Singh House in the paper. The address was not listed other than Bridgman Downs. He thought the house looked familiar. He thought he may have been there. He believed he had taken a fare there around that date. He only worked weekends, so the fare would have been on a weekend. 
He recalled he went there at night time, late. He didn't know the address of the Singh House and he was not familiar with Bridgman Downs as he did not do many jobs in that suburb. He didn't want to go to the police with his suspicions and waste their time and in his mind looked silly. Taxi driver Bourne reviewed his job logs and obtained payment receipts from head office. He checked his jobs before and after and the cab ranks he sat at. He put his wife in the car and they went for a drive. He retraced his route the passenger directed him along. Go through the lights, turn right, turn left. He continued along using his memory. It was dark when he took the fare and it was now daylight when he was retracing his steps. He turned into Grass Tree Close and drove up to the end of the cul-de-sac, to the big two-storey house on top of the hill, the Singh House, and saw that this was the house he delivered the fare to, and immediately recognised the house as he had seen it in the newspaper. He remembered he watched the customer walk up the side of the house toward the rear. On 1 May 2003, just a week later, he prepared a six-page statement setting out all this information. He had done all his own investigations and prepared his own statement. He then approached police. Taxi driver Bourne told police he took a fare from Fortitude Valley to the Singh House after 11pm that Sunday night, 20 April 2003, the night police believed the murders were committed. The passenger was a man. Aged late 20s, early 30s. 5 foot 8 to 5 foot 10. Wiry to medium build. Not Max Seeker. The man did not live there, he said, but was staying with a mate. The police concluded taxi driver Bourne got the dates mixed up and he was referring to another night. As such, he was not called as a witness. I have read the full file. There was some doubt over the date of the attendance, but Bourne believed then, and believes now, it was that night. What was missing from the two police statements were details of taxi driver Bourne's previous employment before he drove taxis. Bourne was a former member of the Queensland Police Service, a 35-year veteran. I believe taxi driver Bourne is, and was, a credible witness. A very credible witness. I thought it was cheeky of the investigator not to include taxi driver Bourne's past employment in his statement. His credentials, really. It wasn't a case the police officer wasn't aware of Bourne's background. They had worked together. To most casual observers, this witness was a taxi driver who got his dates confused. Taxi driver Bourne's evidence was very problematic for the Crown. In fact, if Bourne had delivered a customer to that address as stated, Max Seeker was not the killer or he had an accomplice. I believe the jury should have decided whether taxi driver Bourne was at the Singh House that crucial Sunday night. I recently had the pleasure to talk to Bourne. Bourne, can you tell me how old you are, please? I'm 80, being born the 2nd of June 1941. 
and in 2003, you were a taxi driver? I had my own private investigation company, but I went back driving cabs on a part-time basis three days a week to help out a cab owner who was all leasy. He was having difficulties at the time, and I did it as a favour. And before that, you are in the police force? Yeah, I, was in the, I left the police in 19, July 1993. And what rank were you when you retired? Uh, I was a detective inspector. And you were a detective for many years? Nearly 30. What squads were you in charge of at times? In charge and responsible for the functions of the Homicide Squad, the Armed Hold-Up Squad, Major Crime Squad and Sexual Offenders Squad, normally run each run by a detective inspector. I was there for nearly three years. And in April 2003, you were driving taxis? Yes, I was going to buy a cab and I went driving full-time. My wife didn't want me to do it because her reason was that they didn't see me much at all then. And if I owned the cab, they'd never see me. You believe you took a male person from the valley to the Singh household on the night of Sunday, the 20th of April, 2003, in your taxi. Is that correct? Yes, and I still do. You don't know the identity of that male person? No. Other than I picked him up, I think, in, in Brunswick Street. It was a hail. Or it might have been on the rank. I'm not sure now because I remember he sat in the back seat in the middle where I always liked them to sit. They're on their own. And I asked him, I gave him the options we could go home to McDowell, which I wasn't really familiar with as a cab driver, the, where he lived, side he lived. And I took him out on the way out there. We just talked generally. Do you know why you weren't called to give evidence at the trial? Well, I was told that it, was the, it wasn't on the day in question. That you got the date wrong? Yeah. But you don't agree with that? Well, not really, no. Whilst I, I can't swear to it, 100%, I'm pretty sure that was the night in question. The second lie centred on the time Maxique arrived at the Singh house the day he found the bodies. There was much confusion over the time Maxique arrived at the house on Tuesday the 22nd of April 2003. The judge in his summing up to the jury stated that witnesses reported seeing Maxique arrive in Grass Tree Close anywhere between 1.50pm to 3.15pm. Clearly inaccurate, as Seeker called triple zero at 2.33pm. It was a Crown case. Seeker arrived at the Singh House at about 2pm. Shortly after a call from his landline to Neilma's landline at 1.50pm. The Crown claimed Seeker then drove directly to the Singh House, a quick 10-minute drive. This was a critical part of their case. The Crown claimed he deliberately lied about the time he arrived at the house because he could not innocently explain why he spent so much time inside the house. It was the defence case that Anna, Max's sister, called him several times that day 
to confirm a lift to Stafford City Shopping Centre for a hairdressing appointment. At 1.30pm, she called him again to remind him. The appointment was for 2.30pm. Shortly after a call from his landline to Neilma's landline at 1.50pm, Max Seeker loaded the children in his car and drove to his sister's house at Anogra, he claimed. His son, 10 years, his daughter, 7 years, and his niece, Malena, 10 years, were in the car with him. Anna gave evidence that he arrived at her house between 1.50pm and 2pm. He then drove her to Stafford City Shopping Centre. She arrived for her appointment between 2.10pm and 2.15pm, according to the hairdresser. Prosecutor stated she was lying when she said Seeker drove her to the shopping centre. Incidentally, police informed there was no vision on CCTV at the shopping centre of Seeker's car between 2.15pm and 2.30pm on that day. They did not search CCTV before 2.15pm, despite Anna telling police she arrived at that time. From there, Seeker claimed he drove to the Singh house. Anna, can you tell me your relationship to Max Seeker? I'm his sister. Do you believe he killed the Singh children? No. Why not? Because Max is the type of person who would take the shirt off his back. He's a submissive person and he's a caring, affectionate person and the only thing he ever did was have and look out for those children when he was called so many times to help them within the household that was chaotic and full of trauma. My brother was called to help on many occasions. He tried to protect them at every cost. Do you remember Tuesday the 22nd of April 2003? I certainly do. Did Max pick you up to take you to the shops? Yes, he did. How did that come about? Did you call him? Yes, I did several times to remind him. Do you remember what time he picked you up? Yes, at approximately 5 to 2 in the afternoon, p.m. Who was with him in the car? There was Daniel, his son, Brittany, his daughter, and Milena, his niece. Were there neighbours present or witnesses when he arrived at your place? Yes, there was uh, a neighbour. I don't remember whether it was on the left or the right-hand side of where I was living by the name of Kieran and um, I don't know the surname though. It was in army housing. So Kieran gave police a statement to say that he saw Max pick you up. Is that what you're saying? That's correct. How do you know about that statement? Because I read it and my mother was in the um, presence of it and showed it to me, but it was never followed up and followed through. Once you left your house with Max and the children, where did you go? To Stafford City Shopping Centre as I had a 2.30 appointment, but my brother could drop me off only earlier um, than the time. So we actually ended up arriving there at 2.07pm. I know this to be a fact because the vehicle in which my brother was in had the time right in front of the middle of the dash in between the steering wheel and the glove box. There was a time just above the Bluebird Nissan 
and it said 2.07 p.m. Now, even though my appointment originally was for 2.30, by the time I got out of the car, it was 10 past two. When I walked in, the lady had a cancellation, so she was able to actually fit me in earlier than the 2.30 time slot. Did you give evidence at the trial? Yes, I did. Did the Crown say that you were lying when you, when you said that Max picked you up? No, at no point did they say that I was lying. What they did say is try to um, imply that uh, there was other people that actually uh, came to the conclusion that my brother Max was actually at the premises of the Singh household earlier um, than anticipated and I actually said that's impossible because my brother actually picked me up at five to two yet to my recollection the police were saying that my brother was already there um, just after two o'clock I said that's absolutely impossible because my brother picked me up from Inogra at five to two p.m. on that Tuesday and dropped me off at 2.07 and I got out of the car at 10 past two. So were they implying that he dropped you off earlier or how did you get there then? I don't know what they were implying. All I know is that they were saying one thing which was actually different to the facts. Max Seeker's 10-year-old son gave police four statements. In the statement the day after the bodies were discovered, he told police they arrived at the Singh house at 2.20pm. In statements two and three, he told police they drove straight to the Singh house from their Stafford Heights house. In statement four, he told police they had Auntie Enna in the car and dropped her to Chermside Shopping Centre. The Crown stated his evidence was unreliable. Max Seeker's 10-year-old niece, Malena, was interviewed on 23 April 2003, the day following the discovery of the bodies. She had this to say to police. We went to get an aunt and take her to Stafford. It was Auntie Anna. The Crown did not call her to give evidence. Melena, you're 28 years of age, is that correct? Yes. And in April 2003, you're 10 years old, is that right? Yes. And what relation are you to Max Seeker? He's my uncle. I'm his niece. Do you remember Tuesday the 22nd of April 2003, Milena? I can remember bits and bobs of it. What do you remember? I remember that um, we had lunch here. Um, I also remember that uh, when we left, we went to pick up Aniana. We also had DVDs to return. And I remember that we went to the sink house and um, we tried knocking on the door. There was no answer. I remember walking through the backyard when we couldn't get any answer. I remember, like, looking through the window um, of the garage and seeing that there was two cars there. What else do you remember? I also remember that the door was very easy to open, like it was a jar, like half, you know, open. Um, and from then on, I also remember the little dog that they had, Buja, and um, he was wanting to come out. Uh, I also remember that 
we got told to wait in the car. Like um, I also remember going back and getting Uncle Max's wallet and his stuff and bringing it back to the car. Like Daniel got handed it to him. You left the house here with Uncle Max, with your cousin Daniel and your cousin Brittany. Is that correct? Yes. Do you remember what time of day that was? No, I don't remember. You drove from here to Auntie Anna's place? I don't remember in what order we did things, but I'm pretty sure. Like, I do remember 100% picking up Auntie Anna. And from there, you did take her to Stafford City Shopping Centre? Yes, I remember the the entrance of Stafford City where the hairdressers is. And from there, you went to uh, the Singh House and you may or may not have dropped off a, a video you can't remember. Yes. When Max Seeker called triple zero on that fateful Tuesday afternoon, he told the operator there were three bodies in the spa bath in the home at 20 Grass Tree Close, Bridgman Downs. Prosecutors say that when Max Seeker phoned police, he said there was three bodies in that spa, but when they arrived, they could only find two. Canal Singh's body was hidden under bedclothes. The Crown was to make a big issue of this at trial. Virtually all first responders, including the two ambulance officers and others who entered the bathroom, could only see two bodies. It was only after lifting a pillow and bedding still on one end of the spa could they see a foot that seemed additional to the bodies and out of place. In summing up, the trial judge spent considerable time pointing this out to the jury. One scenes of crime officer spotted three bodies almost immediately, but the majority only saw two bodies. I began to walk toward the open double doors which appeared to lead into the master bedroom. I also recall that the pungent, sweet smell was very strong and the vibrating, gurgling noise was quite loud. Constable G walked forward first and entered the bathroom and I followed him in. The landing area was quite warm, almost humid and quite stuffy as the windows were all shut. As I entered the bathroom, I noticed that it was quite dim due to the blinds being closed. I looked to the left and saw what I thought was two bodies in the spa bath. I recall that the spa was running and that the watermark was about two inches from the lip of the bath. The water was quite murky in colour and there was a film of white froth on the surface of the water closer to the edge of the bath. The bathroom was very warm, similar to that of a bathroom after having a hot shower. I noticed that there was dark bedding on the right-hand side of the spa, which spilled onto the floor. I recall that there was bedding intertwined with the bodies in the spa bath. I recall hearing Constable G confirm on the police radio that there were dead bodies in the bathroom, or words to that effect. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone who attended the crime scene that day did not live in the house and had never been there before. They did not know who or how many people lived in the house. They literally did not know what to expect. 
Max Seeker told police when he entered the bathroom, he pulled all the bedding off the spa and saw Neilma and Siddy. He saw Cannell's foot at the end of the bath. Crime scene photos show the two female bodies in the spa, and by examining the photos closely, Cannell's foot can be seen, but his leg is obscured by a pillow. Max Seeker knew three people were expected to be in the house. He had seen both cars in the garage when he arrived. He told police he saw blood trails from Neilman's room and Cannell's room, as well as blood on the floor in the master bedroom. Everyone who entered the house that day saw trails of a dark brown colour leading from both bedrooms, through the master bedroom, to the spa. The police photographs clearly show the blood trails. I find it reasonable, therefore, that Max Seeker was expecting to find three bodies in the spa, not two, or at least was looking for three bodies, and found them. I could not find where his defence counsel raised this issue at all during the trial. What I believe to be a valid and practical conclusion on Max Seeker's part. Am I giving Max Seeker a free pass on this point? Perhaps, but I don't think so. You heard in the last episode the 17 points of circumstantial evidence the Crown relied on to prove their case. In his summing up, the defence barrister De Carlo gave the jury his top 10 reasons for claiming Seeker was not guilty of the murders. The defence lawyer in the Singh murders trial has concluded his final address with 10 reasons why the jury should acquit Max Seeker. Ursula Hager is following the trial. After 71 days of evidence, Max Seeker's lawyer gave his closing arguments with a top 10 list of reasons to acquit. He told the jury that they could not be satisfied there was a full and proper investigation, that police had not properly investigated possible leads in Fiji, that unidentifiable prints at the Singh house had not been matched to anyone that police could not explain blood-stained sandals, a cup, t-shirt and bucket found after the murders. He told the court that despite extensive surveillance of Seeker, there was not one iota of direct evidence. He said that Seeker had not deleted a message from Neilma Singh's phone, that there was no evidence of a violent disposition suggesting a lack of motive, that no one person could commit the crime and so thoroughly clean up the evidence that it was never discovered who was at the Singh's door on the night of the murders. And finally, he told the court there was not one iota of the victim's DNA connected to Seeker. Mr DiCarlo concluded by saying it's better that 100 guilty men go free than one innocent man hang. Justice John Byrne will tomorrow sum up both the Crown and the defence cases before the jury retires to decide the verdict. Ursula Hager, 10 News. 10 there was not a full and proper investigation. It was the defence counsel case that in the counsel's words, if the police did not have blinkers on, they could have just as easily built a circumstantial case against other people. It was the defence claim that Max Seeker became the focus of the police investigation within eight hours of him finding the bodies. It was public knowledge from 25 April, three days after the murders, that Max Seeker was the main suspect. 9. There was a failure to conduct a full and proper investigation in Fiji. 
In Episode 6, I detail unresolved matters from Fiji. In Episode 7, I discuss the Solomon Islands. 8. There are fingerprints outstanding at the Singh House that are identifiable and have not been identified. There is always a chance that sometime down the track, they may be identified and point to someone else. This is a very valid point. Who owns the unidentified fingerprints found in the Singh home in the bedrooms of the victims? As well, there were face and ear impressions on the door leading from the laundry to the main downstairs area of the house and further face and ear impressions on Neilma's bedroom door on the first floor of the house. The owner of these impressions has never been identified. Max Seeker was eliminated as the owner of these impressions. The Crown called these matters a distraction. 7. The unexplained but dismissed as distractions, blood-stained public sandals in Neilma's room, the cup, the T-shirt and the blue bucket. And you should ask, who used the cup from which DNA was not obtained that was found in Neilma's room? These are valid claims. In the last episode, I explained that According to the Crown scenario, Max Seeker was obedient to the house rules of not wearing shoes upstairs, but wore Singh's public sandals, four sizes too small. Each member of the Singh family had their own cup that they used. The yellow cup was found in Neilma's room was not her cup. How did it get there? Who put it there? Surely if Neilma had used that cup, her DNA would have been found, and no DNA was obtained from the cup. Was it wiped clean? In addition, just as none of the family wore shoes upstairs, none of the Singh family consumed food or drink upstairs or in the bedrooms. A large T-shirt was found under Canal's bed. The ownership of that T-shirt was never established. If a friend of Canell's had left that shirt there in an innocent visit, it surely would have been identified. Did the killer leave the shirt there? The blue bucket. Vijay and Shirley Singh stated they did not own this bucket. 6. Between the deaths and his arrest, the accused did not run away. And despite deployment of undercover police and listening devices, The police were not able to produce one iota of direct evidence unless you accept the evidence of Ms B. In almost six years, there was no evidence obtained against Max Seeker apart from circumstantial evidence. 5. The failure to delete from Neilma's phone the message at 8.56pm on Easter Sunday. As you have heard in the last episode, The Crown claimed Max Seeker returned to the crime scene on the day he discovered the bodies because he needed to dispose of further evidence, something he missed or forgot after the murders. So the defence asked the question, wouldn't he delete the SMS message of Sunday night? Or dispose of her phone? In the spa, perhaps? So it begs the question, if he was the killer... Why did he not delete the SMS message of 8.56pm? 
and he could not have cleaned anything in the house on that Tuesday, as it would have surely got on his hands, clothes or shoes. And he did not take anything away from the crime scene, as police seized all his clothes and his car that day from the crime scene. Nothing underward was found. It has been said killers do return to the crime scene to relive the crime. If Max Seeker was the killer, was this his motive for returning to the house? 4. The complete lack of evidence of a violent disposition on the accused part, despite an abundance of provocative incidents, including Mr Singh's reaction to the marriage proposal, infidelity with Jasphere, the 22nd of November incident, things which tend to suggest that you might find there is a lack of motive. The Crown was unable to present any evidence that Seeker was a violent person. He was certainly a liar, and jealous, and possessive, and acted appallingly in respect of the emails he sent, but no evidence of violence. He had an extensive criminal history, which the jury did not get to hear but it does not include any violence towards women. His ex-wife said he was not violent toward her, their children, or any other female during their marriage. Shirley Singh did not describe him as violent. In April 2003, just before flying to Fiji, Vijay Singh dragged a very reluctant Neuma to Stafford Police Station. Vijay demanded police take some action against Seeker. He referenced the SMS messages from Seeker to Neilma as proof. The police officer recorded that Neilma did not want to be there and did not want anything to do with it. He read some of the messages that Seeker had sent Neilma. He concluded there was no need for police intervention. He concluded there was no need to require a mental health assessment order against Max Seeker and there was no evidence to support a DVO against Max Seeker. 3. No one person could engage in such bloodletting, carried bodies to the spa, carried blankets and bed linen to a spa, and then so thoroughly cleaned a house of that magnitude that every single trace of his presence and involvement in the murders is erased in the window the prosecution contends for. This is another valid point. At 7.15am on that Monday morning, Max Seeker arrived at his ex-wife's house and collected his two children and spent the day with them. Supposedly after committing a brutal triple murder, disposing of their bodies and all the evidence connecting him to the crime. And that night, his new girlfriend came to his house and did not notice anything out of the ordinary. The bruising on Neilma's arms consistent with her being restrained, is consistent with more than one killer. And if Max Seeker was the killer, who assisted him? You will recall I mentioned the Lockhart Exchange principle. Every contact leaves a trace. A trace of the killer will be found at the scene, and a trace of the victims will be found on the killer. This theory did not work in the Singh murders. No trace was found connecting Max Seeker to the crime or the crime to Seeker. It is noted a trace of the killer was found at the crime scene in the form of bleach stains on the carpeted stairs. 2. 
The investigation failed to identify the night caller at the door at around 8.30pm on Easter Sunday and why it was necessary for Neilma to cut her conversation with her sister to answer the door when Canal and City were at home. As previously discussed, if this were a friend or legitimate visitor, surely they would have come forward. The only conclusion that can be reached is that it was not a legitimate visitor. It was the defence case this visitor or visitors stayed or returned later and possibly restrained the victims before killing them later. The Crown described this as another distraction if there was someone at the door. 1. None of the victims' DNA, blood or other bodily fluids was detected on the accused, his clothes, his cars and I ask you to compare that with the minuscule amount they found in respect of the two males which had been left some considerable period of time before on one small piece of carpet. To clarify that last comment, the apparent murder weapon was found on a piece of carpet. Two lots of DNA were found on that carpet, linked to two people who had last been in the house 12 months earlier. Yet no DNA in the house could be linked to Seeker. Following the defence address to the jury, the judge gave the jury the required summing up. For those not familiar with the trial process, the judge sums up all the evidence to remind the jury of what evidence was given during the trial. This covered an eye-watering 275 pages. It took over four hours to deliver. The jury then retired and considered their verdict for four days before finding Max Seeker guilty on all three counts of murder. And as you have heard, he was sentenced to a non-parole period of 35 years imprisonment. Seeker filed an appeal against his convictions on 27 July 2012. On 2 September 2013, the appeal was dismissed. With time served, Seeker will be eligible for parole around December 2043. At that time, he will be 73 years of age. After his conviction and during sentencing, Sonia Pathik read out a victim impact statement. These are her words, but not her voice. To the presiding judge. My life has never been the same since the 22nd of April 2003 when a request was placed to write this document. I felt nervous and very ill, sick in the stomach that nine years of suppressed emotions have now surfaced, which I've been dreading ever since. Nine years. The worst news was presented to me, that horrible phone call on the 22nd of April 2003, a call that gave me an asthma attack while I was trying to make sense of it all during that moment. Now my life has and will never be the same knowing my two beautiful sisters, Nilma, Sidi and my one and only brother, Kanal, are no longer with us. How can a 26-year-old go through what I did? My parents were angry at me for not being there, for protecting them like I was supposed to. I initially felt like I was a suspect and made a disconnect from my own self and I started blaming myself. I hated myself and felt I was unworthy of any love and affection. I'm the eldest and I was the protector. 
To walk through the house after it was released to me and my papa, Vijay Singh, I'll never forget the sight which has become a constant nightmare which I've had to live with for the rest of my life. The blood spatters of my baby sister, my angelic city, on the walls of the room made me feel really sick. Even writing about it, mentally scarred, it is a sight I will never forget. The trauma I face still to this day and walking back into that room and walking into the bathroom to light the candles in the spa makes me still to the present day sit there and just look, gaze at the loss involved. I was requested to assist with the funeral arrangements, which I had no idea how to manage to get through. I was breaking apart, but I knew my parents' well-being was a priority for me. Saying goodbye to three coffin boxes sitting right in front of me, I was having no idea how to react. Well, something I constantly think about. I know what it feels like to be numb, lifeless and confused. No feelings, no emotions. I wanted to cry, but no tears will fall. I want to be angry, but my mind and body were not permitting me to be that way. Nilma and I had planned to always be there for each other. I felt and still feel that I failed her. I let her down. I let Canal and City down. I still haven't forgiven myself and slowly burn inside from time to time. I become very ill. Things would have been different if they would have been here today with us. My mind races back and always thinks this, that if I would have been there, then this would not have happened. My security became an issue for my husband and it was decided we should leave Brisbane and move somewhere that could give us some security and some peace of mind. Once the move was decided upon and finalised, I was looked upon as someone who was a coward. My own parents disowned me and called me by those names. My papa stopped speaking to me. My community also said I was a coward, selfish, and this really hurt me on top of everything else I was mentally and emotionally going through. My relationship with my parents became very estranged. They chose not to speak to me. My well-being was not their priority and I, at this stage, was not a priority. I became a forgotten child. I was the eldest and only child left. I am still saddened by this right now because this is not the way things were meant to be. I didn't know how to grieve. My relationship with my husband became strained. Two very loving beings and best friends living the life of strangers under the same roof. Both living separate lives, but together trying to make sense of it all. How do we grieve? How do you support each other? How do we support my parents? I questioned my faith. I fought with my gods and questioned them. I lost my faith. I still to this day question how someone could be so cruel. What runs through a person's mind to act with such cruelty? Especially to my beautiful baby sister, Siddy. Does this person have any remorse? Does this person have any feelings? This person is a cold-blooded murderer, a cruel, sadistic, cold-blooded animal who has caused enough grief, pain and suffering for as long as I live. My life will never be the same, nor will I ever forget the ongoing pain and suffering I had to and still have to live with forever. 
Just when you thought you had heard everything there was to know about the Seeker trial, the issue of jury tampering reared its head. The story goes like this. A police officer with 10 years service left the Queensland Police Service and went to work at a company where she oversaw staff. For convenience, we shall call her Debbie. This is not her real name. She well knew the sanctity of the jury room and the absolute no-no of anyone outside the jury room discussing the evidence with a juror. There was a female employee aged in her 40s who mentioned to her supervisor Debbie that her father was a juror in the seeker trial. For convenience, we shall call the employee Tracy. The following is from a statement provided by the ex-police officer, we have called Debbie, to the DPP in June 2012, whilst the trial of Max Seeker was proceeding and almost at its conclusion. This is not her voice. I've previously been employed as a Queensland police officer. I was sworn into the police force in 1975 and progressed to the rank of senior constable, resigning in 1985. In 2011, I commenced employment with a company in Brisbane. I can't remember the exact dates, however, I think it was early February or late January 2012. One of my employees told me that her father had been selected as a jury member for the Seeker trial. Since this time, Mary has spoken to me on several occasions making reference to the Seeker trial. On each of these occasions, the information she provided is information that had been provided by her father. These conversations always occurred in the kitchen at our workplace. I cannot recall the exact details of the conversations, however I recall the following. That the evidence was very technical and the jurors were having trouble following it and that her father was finding it hard to understand. The photographs were very upsetting and some of the jurors were crying and her father was concerned about the psychological state of some of them. That the family of the deceased children were not normal. On one occasion I did outline to Mary my interpretation of what I thought was likely to have happened. I said to her that it sounded like the boyfriend had done it based on my knowledge that there were no other suspects and I outlined that I suspected that the boyfriend had murdered the ex-girlfriend and murdered the other children because they were witnesses. I don't know if Mary spoke to her father about what I had said. She never ever came back to me to say that her father agreed or disagreed. The fact that Mary was discussing the information her father was telling her about the seeker trial with me was causing me some concern. Specifically, I know that it is not appropriate for jurors to discuss the circumstances of a trial with others outside the jury. However, I didn't really know what I should do with the information at that time. I am not sure if it was Monday the 18th of June 2012 or Tuesday the 19th 2012. I was once again in the kitchen and we were talking about the bail situation and associated matters with regards to the Baden-Clay case. I recall asking Mary if the Seeker trial was still going. Mary told me that it was still going, but it was close to the end. She then started to provide a lot more detailed information about the trial. I recall her providing me with the following information. This information was relayed in such a way that it had been provided to her by her father. She said the parents of the deceased children were horrible parents 
and the father was violent. They were running a brothel from home and that they, the parents, were involving the children. I said, the parents were overseas, weren't they? She said, yes, they've got an alibi. Whoever did it had to have access to the house because the house wasn't broken into. I can't remember the exact words Mary used. However, she did say that barrister for the guy on trial was very good the way he put things. There was more conversation about the deceased children's parents and their lifestyle. This conversation was critical of the parents and the family. Mary went on for some time talking about the parents, how violent they were. I felt compelled to defend the family and I remember making mention to Mary that if it was so bad for the children, why wouldn't they leave? She went on by repeating that the parents were so horrible and bad parents. I then said, it sounds like your father is leading towards not guilty. She said, well, it is a man's life and it's all circumstantial evidence anyway. This caused me a great deal of concern. Mary continued on about how bad the parents were, causing me to say, just because people are bad parents doesn't mean they murder their children. I then left the room. This last conversation caused me a great deal of concern because I know that jurors should not be discussing information outside the jury room and I believe that this last conversation with Mary showed that her father was discussing a lot of information with Mary. This was taking jury tampering to a spectacular level. It would be safe to say that in any other trial, the jury would have been discharged and a mistrial called. At the very least, the jury would have been removed. Probably anywhere in the world where the Westminster system of justice is practised. The trial should have been suspended. An investigation should have been undertaken. There was a very real need to ascertain if the juror in question had discussed the conversations he had with his daughter with other jurors. And of course, what the daughter had passed on from the policewoman. In the Seeker trial, nothing happened. The blame for that can probably be laid at the feet of the Defence Counsel, who made the call that in the event of a guilty verdict, he would use a jury tampering as a ground for appeal. After Max Seeker's conviction, there was an appeal. A different barrister was engaged to conduct the appeal. The jury tampering issue was not raised at appeal. Why did the ex-policewoman go to the DPP? Not because she had an attack of conscience that she had interfered with the jury process. She went to the DPP because of her concern the juror would find Max Seeker not guilty. She wanted him kicked off the jury. You could not make this stuff up. Max Seeker applied to have a judge-only trial. There were valid grounds for a judge-only trial. The number of witnesses that were expected to be called, the complexity of the evidence, the graphic nature of the killings, the concern a fair trial could not be obtained due to the sheer volume of media reports on the murder and the police investigation, the fact that Seeker was facing further charges involving allegations of child sex offences. As you have heard, the application for a judge-only trial was refused. For those who listened to my previous podcast, Who Killed Leanne Holland, you may recall Ted Dews. His book, Crucial Errors in Murder Investigations, was published by Bond University Press in 2012. It examined some 18 controversial cases in which significant procedural issues arose. His latest book, I Know Who Killed Betty Shanks, 
was published by Boolarong Press in 2014. Ted is currently working on another book entitled Miscarriages of Justice. Ted attended the Seeker trial on many days of evidence being heard. I had the pleasure of talking to Ted regarding his thoughts on the evidence and the verdict. I found his comments regarding the group of similar-minded persons attending the trial particularly fascinating. A number of people at the trial used to eat at the cafe across the road and we started to get to know each other and we started to talk and um, when the trial finished the jury was sent out to consider their verdict and at lunch on that day um, we said well what's the jury going to say when they come back so we had a sort of a straw vote around the table and seven of us out of the eight said not guilty uh, we were pretty firmly convinced that Seeker would be found not guilty because all of us believed that the murders, well, all of us but one, I suppose, believed that the murders happened on the Monday night, not on the Sunday night. That concludes Episode 5, The World According to Max. Please join me in Episode 6, Loose Ends, where I start to explore some of the discrepancies with the evidence. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like it, recommend it to others. If you have questions, information or feedback, you can contact me via the following. The Facebook page is Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy. My email address is looseends2003 at outlook.com. This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Appreciation to Bad Bassam for editing, mixing and mastering the episode. Music, before I go, by RKVC. Media clips courtesy of channels 7, 9 and 10. You'll find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode.